Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-408 of the Run Run Live podcast. And well, folks, it's been almost a month since the Boston Marathon, so let's get back on track, back in the saddle, and do some serious podcasting. Grr! Serious podcasting. I wrote this sitting in a Starbucks, one of the two Starbucks that is on my work commute route. And my hands were a bit cold, so it was hard to type. I rode my motorcycle, and it was in the low 40s, but sunny. So sometimes on the way to work, I like to stop and write for small patches of time in the morning at these oases of warmth and humanity. Starbucks are very interesting. I've got some calls that I'll take from Starbucks, and then I'll wander into the office later. But anyhow... Today we've got a great chat with Bill, who's one of those crunchy old ultra runners who have done everything. And I was interested particularly in how he did his cross-country run, and he definitely has a viewpoint on it, a viewpoint on everything. In section one, we'll talk about working through a post-event funk, and in section two, I'll keep pounding away on the big navel-gazing topics of Eckhart Tolle's book. The Power of Now. And I'm training, actually in my taper, for the Vermont Cities Marathon. I have some, I've had some good workouts, some not so great workouts. In general, I've kept the weight off and my training paces are still good. I've got some high hamstring attach point challenges that I'm trying to rehab through. The And this is the challenge with extending training cycles, especially for road racing, is that they tend to get very specific, and they make you fragile. So somehow this long cycle has made my hips and glutes a bit weak, and they have started going on me in the high miles. So it's the same old story. You lower the water level, you find new rocks. So you just keep training, you'll find new weak points. So I'm working through that. I found some great uh, series of exercises for high hamstrings that I'm doing. So we'll talk more about some of this uh, update of my training in the outro. But for now, let me tell one quick story, and we'll get on with it. And it's a quick story about a giant half-eaten catfish. 
So when I was in elementary school, so I don't know, eight, nine, ten years old, I had a best friend whose name was Dave. And I remember one summer we built a fort in the rafters of my dad's garage and decorated it with stickers from Mad Magazine. And I remember being up in that fort and listening to Ricky Don't Lose That Number by Steely Dan on the pop station. So that would have made it 1975-ish. And then sometimes I'd go over to Dave's house, maybe on the weekends, and then we'd just disappear. We'd disappear into the woods and the roads around his house. We'd go exploring. And we would wander over to the train tracks and the quarry. <laughs> we put pennies on the tracks for the trains to smush, you know, things like that. Normal eight, nine, ten-year-old things. And so one time we were out on the power lines behind his house, the same power lines that I ride my mountain bike on and do long trail runs on these days. It was somewhere around this time of year, maybe a little bit later, spring in New England. And what happens in spring is we get the melt and a lot of rain. And the ponds, the rivers, the swamps, they all fill up with water. For instance, I have a little pond in my backyard right now that only exists this time of year. When I used to have ducks, they really liked that. Anyhow, we were wandering through this patch of swamp that had recently been a pond, and we came across a giant catfish, high and dry, with a bit missing from it, you know, scavengers. And it's too bad we didn't have Instagram back then, right? Could have taken a picture. But here was this enormous fish, as if dropped from the sky by aliens into the middle of a field. That's a 50 to 60-year-old fish right? And it took a wrong turn somewhere, ended up in this field. And I'll, I'll always remember that image in my internal Instagram, which is probably much better than the actual picture anyhow. And I tell this story because my mom called me to tell me that Dave died last week, and I hadn't spoken to him in decades. But Not to be more morbid with you guys, but I want you to understand and appreciate that today it's a gift, and we're all winning, right? We're all in extra innings. And you and I are blessed, so don't waste it. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Paying attention to your warning lights. Catching yourself in the dangerous calm of a post-event slump. There is a real emotional and physical hangover from any big event in our lives, whether it is a graduation, a new job, the birth of a child, or, for we amateur endurance athletes, a major target race or event. Those of you who have lived through training cycles for big events know what I am talking about. There is an emotional and physical component to this post-event ennui, this letdown. It varies by the event, the time of year, and the season in your life. It can be a very personal thing, specific to the individual athlete. But it's not something to take lightly. These slumps are affected by other things that are going on in your life as well. And this can be particularly dangerous when there's a resonance a negative challenge at work or a relationship blip alongside the post-event emotional drop-off can push people over the edge. And it really helps 
to be ready and to recognize the symptoms of a post-event slump because it is both physical and mental. And since the physical and the mental are intricately connected, you need to monitor both and the intersection of both. So let's look at the mental part first. To be fair, the emotional bump post-event can be positive as well as negative. If you have a tremendously wonderful outcome from your event, you can ride that emotional high for weeks. It's a glow of success that translates into happiness and self-satisfaction, and feel free to ride that wave as long as possible. The challenge is, when there was not clearly defined victory to celebrate, even if we are psychologically okay in our big brains, the subconscious may see this as failure or at least lack of resolution. And there's not much you can do about this except to utilize some positive mental health practices. Uh, first, I would recommend give yourself some time. And I'm guilty of not budgeting time to recover from big events. I have a history of having a very crowded life and a history of running to the airport for a flight soon after crossing the finish line. And this can be good in that you're downplaying the significance of the event by making it just part of your routine and you're moving on to the next thing. But it can be bad too. If the outcome of the event was emotionally challenging, jumping on to the next thing without resolution is just delaying the inevitable. At some point, that lack of resolution is going to fester and manifest in your life as a bout of emotional funk or even a physical problem. For a major milestone event, budget some mental recovery time. Let yourself sleep in for a couple days. Understand that you're not going to be your best. Don't overschedule yourself. Expect a bit of an event hangover and budget the time for it. And be careful because another thing that I have found is that the funk can be delayed by a few days. You'll feel fine right after the event, but the funk will sneak up on you at some point later in time. Now, the second thing I would recommend is to take the time to process it. Don't ignore the event once you're done. Don't try to bury it and move on. Again, it'll pop up to bite you later. You need to actively process the emotional impact of that event. If it was a big deal for you, then recognize that and let your mind digest it. Play the event out in your head and look under the corners. Allow yourself to feel. And don't beat yourself up. Take a third-party view. Watch the event and the emotions like a movie playing for you to analyze. Get comfortable with it. Digest it. It's okay to feel the emotional sting, but try to be the observer of these emotions and don't let them affect you directly. And the third thing you can do is to, is to talk about it. Depending on what type of person you are, your processing of the emotions of the event may be helped by talking through it with your friends or a coach. And this can be a very cleansing process for people. Write it up. Even if you don't share your story publicly, take the time to write it down. Don't constrain the narrative. Just let it flow as it comes. And you'll be surprised how much this helps and how interesting it is to reread in a few months' time from a future perspective. These write-ups end up being a great gift to your future self because this post-event mental state is a temporary and fragile thing. So it's cleansing to get it out in the moment. 
And the fourth thing, of course, I always recommend is to establish a clear path, a clear horizon. I've always been a big fan of having my next thing scheduled before I go into that big event. And this positions the event as a point on a continuum, not an end point. And it keeps you from the inevitable what now moment because you have that next thing already scheduled. This is the mentally healthy trick of turning an event-based outlook into a lifestyle-based outlook. And of course, we need to talk about the physical hangover as well as the mental hangover. Like the mental part, this may not manifest for a couple days or weeks. I found it takes a couple days for the adrenaline of the event to wash out and the physical ramifications to start showing up, you know, maybe for weeks after that. After an intense training cycle, your body is going to be overbalanced or overtuned for that activity. These few weeks after the event are a major opportunity to get injured. You are probably coming out of the training cycle with some niggles. And this is when the hard effort of the event may have turned them from niggles into injuries. So give yourself the appropriate physical recovery time that you, specifically you, need. And I emphasize this because those rules of thumb like rest a day for every mile of the event, they're basically BS. I'm sorry, but this recovery time is specific to the athlete and their history. Some people bounce right back. Some people need time and therapy. An excellent step to figure out your physical state is for you not right away, but within the first couple weeks after the event, go get a massage from an experienced physical therapist that works with athletes and tell that person how your event went, how you are feeling, and where the specific niggles are, and ask them not just to treat you, but to evaluate your state so that you can treat yourself and get a good reckoning of where you are physically. And it is tempting to get right back on the horse and do another event, but understand that as you extend the training cycle past your target, you're running a much higher risk of injury. And the biggest challenge people have is ennui, boredom, burnout, lack of motivation after the event. I hear comments like, it just isn't fun anymore, or I can't bring myself to get up and go out. And this is a mental fatigue from the long training cycle and the event itself coupled with the physical fatigue, and the combination of the two is like a bad bout of mental flu sometimes. Though, you know, the best advice I can give you is to look beyond the event, have something out on the horizon to train and to live for, not necessarily the same event, but something, anything, to keep you out of the sargasso sea of funkiness. And remember... We get to do this stuff. No one's making us. This stuff is a privilege. So strap that shit back on and get out there. And now for today's featured interview. So, Bill, I know it's hard for you, given how much you've done and how long you've been doing this. But why don't you give <laughs> us the 200 words or less on uh, who you are and what you do and and, you know, all your accomplishments. Well, at this point, I'm a retired school teacher. I taught uh, 37 years in the elementary school. And uh, one of the things that I tried to impress upon kids was to set goals. And 
I've always felt that if you do your homework, as with saying to you, go back to fifth grade, if you do your homework and you're prepared for the test, the test is actually pretty easy. If you're prepared for Boston and you get to Boston, it shouldn't be that big of a surprise if you do well, because you've put in the time. If you didn't, ah. <laughs> <laughs> see how you're chuckling? <laughs> if you, you didn't. You, haven't, you, you haven't run as many bosses as I have. <laughs> Well, um, sometimes, I'll sometimes I, I sometimes I think no matter how I prepare, this race comes up with some way to kick my ass. So, well, I'll yeah. ask how many <laughs> how many Boston's you have. This week was my twenty first. You got me by three. I have eighteen. Okay. <laughs> uh, I ran my first one in nineteen eighty. There was a yeah. woman that won the race. It's the only Boston that I didn't finish. I rode home on the uh, trolley with this guy named George Sheehan. And, sure, George. <laughs> yes. I had felt that dropping out of Boston on my very first attempt was what uh, really saved me as far as running, because my goal was to go to Boston. And I felt that if I had finished it, there would be nothing else to do. And my plan was to run Boston once and retire from running, but I didn't finish it. And I felt with the history of Boston, and I'm sure you've felt this with 21 of them, I owed that race a better effort. I had to do my homework and be more prepared. My PR there is a 250. And just as you ran yesterday, or the other day on April 15th in 1996, I ran my 100th marathon on Boston's 100th anniversary on my birthday, April 15th. Brilliant. So that was my trifecta. Nice bookend. So well, in 1980. How many people were in that race? That had to be under 3,000 people in that race. Oh, for sure. The thing that, when did you run your first one? Uh, 97. Okay. All of life had changed by 97. Oprah had run a marathon. But in 1980, to get in, you had to qualify. And I'm not talking about today's standards. The qualifying time in 1980 was 250. There'd be yep. a lot of people not going to Boston if they were still running to break 250. That's for sure. Yep. You'd still have about 2,000 people in the race, I think. Yeah, but it wouldn't make the money it makes. It wouldn't generate as much as excitement. All those 10,000 people that run for a cause, either you earn the right to go to Boston or you don't. I could never yeah. see paying my way to go up and fundraise, setting up a GoFundMe account to uh, go run Boston. So I went from Boston in 1980. I got involved with a 24-hour race in 1982. I requalified for Boston, and a friend of mine said uh, he was putting on a race down in Haverford, Pennsylvania here, an indoor 24-hour race, seven laps to the mile on a dirt track. Mm. So my first 24-hour was I set a goal of, again, I do a lot of goal stuff. I figured if I ran four marathons, it comes out to be 104.8. It would get me four marathons, and that's what I ran. I ran a 105 in my first 24-hour. At that point, I got pretty much hooked because I, here's another one for me, relative success. My success is mine. You know, it's just, it's all relative to who you are and what you're doing. For me, I felt relative success. And back then, ultra running was putting out their annual rankings and stuff. And I could go run a, at 243 is my PR in the marathon, but it, it wouldn't get me anywhere near the front. But in an ultra marathon, I, I could carry on and get some relative success. So the, the one day, the 24-hour turned into a 48-hour. And in 1984, I ran my first six-day down in New Jersey. Mm. Again, I had relative success. 
wanted, I thought that if Don Choi and Park Barner could do this, I thought I could run with them over six days. And eventually I ran and won two six-day races in New Jersey, with my best being, at the time, 475 in uh, 1989. The marathon community was small back then, but the ultra marathon community was <laughs> tiny. Yes. There was nobody and doing very, that back then. Very few people traveled. I mean, today you're seeing people running 10, 12, 14 ultras a, a year. They can't be getting all of their best performances if you're running 10 or 12 of them. It just Your body yeah. just can't recover that effort. But at the time, I had relative success. At six days, I could run in the top five in the country and that was important to me. Everybody likes their ego. Everybody has one. And that was important to me. So, And the other thing that's different today than back then, back then, Don Choi, Park Barner, Stu Middleman, these were guys that were at the top of the sport. And most of them retired as they turned 40. There just wasn't anything else to, you know, there, there wasn't that much more to run for. They had done everything. And I had gotten to the point, I was very fortunate. There were three Americans to win a six-day race. Don Choi had the most, Mark Barner was second, and Stu Middleman. I was fourth. And even being that same breath was just a shock to me. But I felt that that's where I was. Uh, once I ran in 1989, I, again, I felt that as a teacher teaching fifth graders, you have to set a goal. And many parents today tell their kids, many parents, teachers, and adults, now you'll, you'll tell me you're different, I know, because I've done this many times, so they tell their kids to try. And if they fail, that's okay. But what they don't really do is they don't let their kids see them fail. Unless they're running marathons or ultras and they don't have a good race, most parents don't put themselves out there to fail in front of their kids. Hmm. 1989, I felt that I had been blowing smoke <laughs> long enough. And I had a goal to run across the country. And in 1989, I took a sabbatical from work from the, uh, the fall of 89 to the spring of 1990. I traveled a little bit out to Australia and did a couple marathons there. And then in February of 1990, I left Huntington Beach, California. My goal was sure. 30 miles a day for 100 days. I had met Jim Shapiro, who had written the book on his run. I had talked to all these people. I, at the time I did it, 1990, I felt no one had been more prepared to run across the country. I'd run seven six-day races with a, a high of 475. I certainly wasn't Giannis Chorus. I certainly wasn't Stu Middleman. They were all over 500 miles. Trishel Churns, over 500 miles. But for me, I thought it was time to put up. So it took me a year to plan it. In um, the fall of 89, I went to Australia. And when I came back, I drove the route that I was going to run. I took really? notes, 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 notes. I get a kick today out of people that have these grand views of running or walking across the United States, <laughs> and they get caught up with their GPS, ran them down a, a one-way street or into a cornfield. They never saw their course. They didn't do their homework, hmm. in my opinion. They just didn't do their homework. You went ahead and did it. You ran from uh, Huntington Beach out to Atlantic City, New Jersey, yep. and uh, you did it. You did your... 30 miles or better a day, right? So it turned when out you to talk be, about... I had to smile. I had to smile because it turned out to be 95 days, which mathematically is just over 50K a day. So ultra runners can associate at least with 50K. And yeah. I pretty much banked out my 50K a day. I didn't sleep on the ground once. I had talked to Jim Shapiro and I had interviewed him and Richie Inamorata up in New York. They were both friends of mine. Uh, I ran my first six-day with Jimmy in uh, 1984. One of them swore to use a backpack 
to run in. The other one swore that a fanny pack was better. So I did both. And this thing today where people are using carts and stuff, I, I just don't get that. I never understood that. So back then, without any sort of connectivity, how did you find people to sleep with? I mean, how did you not sleep on the ground once? Well, of my 100 nights, it took me a year, but I had 70 nights where I spent time with people. The other 30 nights were in hotels. I went to my faculty at school. I told them I had a basic route. I wanted to finish by June 1st so that school would still be in session. That meant that I had to leave in February. I backed up 100 days. I certainly couldn't go across the northern part of the country. Too cold. Right. Too much snow. So I came across basically Route 66 from Barstow all the way to St. Louis. I I ran pretty much on Route 66. I went to my home and school. I had people whose third cousin's divorced wife was putting yeah. me up. Phil, this is the 1980 version of couch surfing that they do today, you know, where they have well, apps to do it. Uh, I'd like to think it was a little more than that. I, I was running. Most of these people, I looked at every day as an eight-hour day. For me, it was an eight-hour day. If I couldn't hold four miles an hour for eight hours and get 32 miles, then I didn't deserve to do that. I interviewed people. No one had been... Uh, more prepared. Jay Bingham, I I talked to him. I talked to all kinds of people. The books that were available, Don Shepard's book, Bruce Tullo's book, I read those. I talked with Stu Middleman. I talked with Don Choi. These were were people at the head of the list as far as ultra running in the United States. And I was fortunate enough to be able to say they were friends. Did you break it up? Did you do some in the morning, some in the afternoon, or did you just go straight through for eight hours? My initial thing was to, again, if you're doing four miles an hour, but I I thought that was ridiculous to only do four miles an hour. My goal was to get up, leave by around eight, depending on who was dropping me off. I would leave around eight. I would try to bang out three hours of six miles an hour so that before noon, I'd have at least 18 miles in. Yeah, which is a 10-minute mile, which is a good pace for an ultra runner, right? I had run seven six-day races. I knew what it meant to, to be out there and be tired and stuff. But I wanted to be off the road by the time it got dark. So I would try to get my 18 in. I would try to eat a good meal for uh, lunch. And then I could walk the rest of the day. It was only 12 miles. (laughs) So after lunch, I would, again, try to bang out six miles an hour. So my average was less than that, but that's the average. I wanted to be able to participate with things. If Chris Russell was going to put me up for the night, you were hosting me for the night, I would end up. 30 miles west of you, you would drive out and pick me up. Now, 30 miles for you in a car takes, what, 45 minutes? Yeah. So you would pick me up, bring me back to your place, and I would spend the night. The next morning, you would drop me off out there. I would run into your place. I would get two nights out of your place. Oh, and if things went, oh that's a good way to do it. And if things went right, I did 30 miles to the east of you. Again, all of that was took a year to set all this up. I told people I was vegetarian. I tell you, know, I, here were my, I don't want to say demands, but here were the things that I could offer. And what I asked them, if I was going to spend two or three nights with somebody, I was pretty much guaranteed somebody would have a child and I would volunteer to go in and talk at their school. Since yeah. I was a teacher, I would go in and set up pen pals with my school back here in Collingdale. Right. I would do that. Yep. Second day, I might talk to your running club and just go over the adventure of where I was two days ago, what had transpired. Yeah. And the third yeah, night, there's running, there's running clubs everywhere, so you could almost string together enough well, nights on running clubs, right? Well, at the time, the Roadrunners Club of America 
based out of Washington, I think, back then. For $2, you could buy a runner's directory of every club (laughs) in the country. And I thought that that was well worth $2. And I would call you. I'd call Chris up and say, Chris, do you have a few minutes? This is what I want to do. Because it gave the runners, it gave the, uh, the president of the club, and I would lay out what I wanted to do. And I don't think there was a time when anybody said that they wouldn't help or they knew somebody that was crazy and they would help. Right. Yep. No, that's and, great. and that's like, again, it took a year. You know, when I see people saying, well, I, I want to leave next Monday. Have you done any homework? What time do you think you're going to be going through the South? If I left in February, I left February 21st. I came through the Mojave in February, so it wasn't that bad. I got into Flagstaff in Arizona on I-40. I got real lucky. I had stopped at the uh, state troopers barracks in uh, Kingman, Arizona. And I talked to the state trooper there, and I said, um, I'm looking for Route 66. I know it was replaced by I-40. And he said, well, think how he worded this. If you tell me you have three sponsors, I'll clear you to run on I-40. How many sponsors do you have? I have three. Yeah. <laughs> With that, he said, I'll clear you. Now, this is 1990, so I'll put you into the system, and you're clear to run on I-40. Yeah. And I ran on I-40 from Kingman, Arizona. Oklahoma City, a thousand miles. I put on I forty. You know there were parts so where I you, the access road. So Bill, you missed the heat, but starting that early, you must hit some really cold weather. Because I've been in the Grand Canyon in <laughs> January or February, and it's six degrees I had, there. I had four whiteouts in Arizona. I had a whiteout. I was leaving Kingman and building up, and you're gaining in elevation up the Flagstaffs over seven thousand. Right. And it had started raining at the beginning of the day. And the guy said, you know, Bill, I think it's done raining. Well, it was. (laughs) It snowed. And it was such a heavy storm. Again, I had four whiteouts in Arizona. Running against the guardrail with traffic, I couldn't see the first lane because of the snow. Yeah. And I got lucky in a couple spots. But the reason you go left to right, west to east, is to get the weather on your back. Right. And I felt that if nothing else, if the weather was on my back, it wouldn't be that bad of a deal. And that's what I did. I came yeah. across, I went, I came into Flagstaff and came down and headed towards Gallup, New Mexico. And I mean, I just stayed with uh, bank presidents. I stayed in um, the motor home, trailer parks, but it just rolled along. Everything worked yeah. beautifully. There were two days that I didn't run. So the 95 is really only a 93-day effort to cross. Uh, Santa Rosa in Arizona. Uh, it might have been New Mexico. It's been a couple. It's been 29 years, so I believe it was New Mexico. I didn't have a place to stay that night, and it was snow on the ground. And I was given permission. Now you have to think of where we are in the United States today with building the wall and all that. I was given permission to break into a church that a lot of people mm-hmm. coming from Mexico had used as a halfway house. Think of the underground, <laughs> you know, the underground railroad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Was, I was given permission, and I thought, you know what, maybe let me take another day. Uh, and I was able to come up with people down in Albuquerque, down the further um, Chicken Carry. I was able to come up with a place to stay the next day, so I went. And again, with the wind on your back or the snow on your back, you just move along. You know, I was only going, it's different, but I was only going 30 miles. Yeah. So I'd try to bang out my six miles an hour, get off the road. You know, like when you walk into a place, you knew people were looking at you. I mean, I'd walk in and I'd have all this stuff all over me. And it was like, holy hell, who, what is this? I would just make sure that I sat facing everybody. And I ended up talking to truckers. Since I was on I-40, truck stops became very important to me. And I considered it a bonus that when I went into the uh, truck stop 
in most truck stops back then, there was a place for you people and there was a place for the truckers to eat. I was accepted into the trucker's place. And I would talk to the truckers and they'd say, oh my gosh, 30 miles. You know, I'm still in third gear. (laughs) 30 miles. I'll be to Virginia and back. You'll be 90 miles away. So it got to the point where certain truckers would honk. And that became a, a major thing for me to get that encouragement. I was going into some places where they said, you're him, aren't you? Yeah, because a couple of things. Back then, it was still a very sort of parochial community in the United States. We didn't have this global sort of access, right? So each town is its own little community. (laughs) But the truckers did have that sort of global community because they were always moving all the time, right? And they had the radios. radios. Yes. I get a kick when I mention it today, and people say, well, what music did you listen to on your iPad? Yeah. And I said, guys, it was 1990. They said, well, yeah, well, what? What app did you use, guys? It was 1990. And then it kind of slowly sinks in. There was no... You you could have carried a Walkman in 1990, but you would have had to carry a lot of batteries. (laughs) Well, that's exactly right. That end, it was extra weight, and I didn't want to be able to not hear traffic since I had traffic on my back. The two things that came up, I talked to the state troopers, and they said they suggested running with traffic on your back. And I thought, oh, we don't do that in Pennsylvania. And I spent one day running against traffic. (laughs) One day, that was the end of that. I felt that if if someone was going to have to clean me up, they didn't have to know that I soiled myself uh, as I was about to get hit. And if I got hit from behind, that was one less mess that somebody would have to clean up off the ground. That was some of the things that I dealt with. And again, I just leapfrogged from one group of people. Sometimes I'd be Chris Russell and he'd say, well, look, I'm off on Saturday. How about I crew for you? And if you crewed for me, what happened was you would go down three miles, three to three and a half, four miles, get me a bottle. And most of them, if they were runners, would come back on the course. You'd go down and run and run back to me. By the time I got there, you may have covered half a mile coming back, caught up with me, giving me a bottle, and we'd go the next half mile back to the car or truck. That's what I would do. Or your wife. I had friends whose wife or teenage son or daughter would crew for us. I had a good friend of mine in Oklahoma who, and only ultra runners can do this. He said, Bill, my wife will drive. How many miles do you want me to do? And I said, Brooks, what do you think? He said, how about we do 35 a day? His wife crewed the two of us as we did 35 plus miles a day for about four days. Now, there's not a whole lot of people that you can just say, can you give me 35 miles today? Yeah. And then do it again tomorrow. But yeah, you've learned the same thing that I've learned over the years, which is the crazier the thing you're doing, the more likely the people are going to show up because it it just excites people, right? And I was very blessed, and I'm truly a blessed person. And the reason I ended up finishing, I finished uh, my transcom when I was 38. I was pretty much done with things. I did try another six day or two in there in the early 90s. But the motivation came up for the 100th anniversary of Boston. And to get there, I had to run 19 marathons in 95 to get to the 100th to run in Boston. So that's what I did. I banged out a four-hour and 15, 20 minutes. Today, somebody said, oh, you ran a 4.15? Oh, my gosh. Wow, that's <laughs> tremendous. That's tremendous. You're in the top half. <laughs> Back then, if you ran a, you, you know how this goes. Back then, if you ran a 4.15, uh, big deal. <laughs> they, they were taking yeah. things down at four hours. I get the same thing when I used to say, well, I'm a mid-packer. I'm running seven-minute miles at Boston. That puts you somewhere in the mid-pack. Right. Sure. And if you're not sure. a mid-packer, you're fast. Well, well it's all uh, relative. It, and that's what, you do. what it became to me. You know, it just became relative. And 
1984, for that first six-day race, I started a race here in my hometown with my local running club. We decided to put on a 12-hour. In 1984, we put on a 12-hour, eventually grew to be a 24-hour, and it ran from 1984 to 2001. And I'll smile and say, all of you people, there's nothing. (laughs) People started running in the woods, and they were happy to run a 7-hour 50K, I guess. It just didn't excite me as much to outrun seven hours for a 50K. In uh, 2008, I had a double bypass. So it took a while to recover from that. 2014, I went to the Dome in in Alaska, a six-day race up there, and uh, was back to running six-day races in uh, 12, 13, and 14. I've now started 13 six-day races, and I'll start another one this August when I go to the Dome in uh, Milwaukee. That's a lot of volume. In 2016, our race was now... Our race D3, of which Greg ran last year, I tried for four years to get him to run it, and he kept bailing on me that his wife wouldn't give him permission. And then he turned 50 last year, and I said, here's your chance to run 50K when you're, you know, as you turn 50. So he did. Greg was part of the running club that I'm in. And it just became in 2016, Pam Smith came to our race and set world records at 12 hours and 200 kilometers for her age group, for women 40 to 44. We've had numerous American records. Last year, you may know the name Gene Dykes. Sure. Gene's the 70-year-old. Well, he came to our race last year and picked up four American records. He picked up 50K, 50 mile, 100K, 12 hours. He's coming back this year. He wants the 100-mile record, and he wants the 24-hour record. I had the smile that of all the races he does, he felt that this was his A race this is going to push him and he wants this band. So we're excited about that. Yeah. We got lucky this year. IAU changed the 24 hour world championships to late October in our race in three weeks, May and Mother's Day weekend is the last qualifying race to make the team. They take the top six men, top six women. Right now, the sixth spot is 154 miles. So if you want to bump Bob Hearn, you have to go over 154 miles. I have five guys coming to get that spot. Oh, that's great. It'll We're be good have, competition. It's going to be good competition. I have the women have to go 152 to knock out Pam Smith. I have maybe three women have a shot at upper 140s, and if it great, the day goes well. And as you just found it out of Boston, depending on the weather. Right. We're running on a 400-meter yeah. track. Ready, set, go. You've got a lot going yeah. on there, Bill. You've managed to maintain your enthusiasm, not just as a participant, but also as a community member over the years here. I do well, appreciate all your uh, cross-country running uh, tips here. I think that would make a good book. I have the book that I did. I Again, teaching, I told kids that if you're going to do it, you might as well write it down. And Again, I, I'm going to project that you're going to give me a different answer, but I always felt that what would anybody want to read what I was doing that day? And yet I've had numerous mm. people. I For a long time, I used to put it on Facebook every day of the run. Every day I matched it up to the day that I started and, and ran across. And people would sit up and read it and they'd say, oh, you know, I just didn't see anything to it. It was just me running and what my observations were. Mm. Other people thought differently. All relative. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. It's slice of life kind of stuff. Yep. So we've abused each other's time here, and I have to get on to another call there, Bill. This has been brilliant. I'm going to have to cut it short, though. Can I leave you with Um, five lines? You can leave me with your poem, your famous poem. May the sun forever shine upon your face. May the wind forever blow upon your back. May your goals forever be in sight. May your beliefs forever give you strength. 
and may your spirit forever run free. There you go. Hallelujah. All right. All right, man. Thanks. <laughs> right. Thanks for the call. Thanks for the talk. We'll Chris, be in touch. Uh, all right. Okay. Thanks again. All right. Thanks for talking today, Bill. I appreciate it. Good luck with your race. Not a problem. Thank you, Chris. Bye-bye. All right. Cheers. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Part three of our Eckhart Tolle series, Space and Time are an Illusion. Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now. So I don't know if you're getting anything out of this series of commentaries on Eckhart Tolle's book. It seems a bit of navel-gazing in retrospect, but I started it, and me being me, I'm going to finish it. So bear with me. And these these are the kind of topics I like to let roam around off-leash in my mind when I'm out on a trail run. So feel free. Feel free to use these topics in your next group run. You will be very popular. It'll go something like this. Hey, how about that game last night, Chris? Never mind the game. Have you considered the importance of nothingness? Ah, shall we forge on then? In previous articles, we looked at this concept of only being able to access the infinite or God or your true being when you are truly in the now. And how being able to access that now makes most of the nasty bits of worry and depression and all that stuff go away because they live in the past and they live in the future. Now, there's truth to this. If you find yourself being overwhelmed in some situation, you can sit back and watch the watcher or watch the thinker to get a third-party view of your emotions. Why are you feeling that? It takes a takes the sting out of our emotions, and it can break a downward spiraling reinforcing pattern. All good stuff. So let's look a little deeper at why being in the now allows you to access this power and what it means to achieve peace in your present moment by getting into a no-mind state. What is this non-being? How do you set aside all that is and focus on nothing? What is nothing? That's a bit of a head-scratcher. If you look at most meditation and meditation-based practices, the goal is to clear your mind, to have no thoughts. Why? Because when you achieve this having no thoughts, you gain access. You shut off your thinking mind, and in that quiet space is a portal to something bigger, more elemental, more universal. Nothing is the portal. And this, coincidentally, is the hardest part of a meditation practice for most people. They get the fact that they're supposed to clear their mind, supposed to quiet their mind, clear out the thoughts, the thinking thoughts, but they can't. I mean, I get it. I can't either. My head is full of screaming weasels most of the time as well. Unless you're very good at this practice, you only get occasional quiet spots and glimpses of the no mind. So how do you think about nothing? Well, that's the whole point. Once you start thinking about it, it becomes something, and you're stuck in an endless loop. You can't know nothing. You can only see it in the relief of things that are. All the somethings in your world only exist to show, in relief, the nothing. It is our minds that try to apply a rational definition to the nothing. Think of it as a room. 
what really defines a room? Is it the walls? The furniture? No, it's the empty space, the nothing. Our minds will constantly try to define the nothing in terms of something. So you only open this portal when you can become aware of the space. Don't think about it, feel it. Meditation is paying attention to the nothing, the empty space between those thoughts. And why do you want to do this? Why would you want to do that? Well, because, according to Eckhart, becoming aware of the nothing will cause a shift in you. You will become aware of the no mind, and this opens a portal to your true being, your inner being. So brace yourself. There's a big thought about to drop here. You ready? This nothing is not just the removal of all things. It is the removal of space and time. Whoa, 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 hold on there. Removal of space and time. Yep, he says there are two attributes of God, and they are infinity and eternity, which is cool because both eternity and infinity are concepts that we cannot directly see but somehow manage to understand. In the same way, we come to understand that the removal of space and time leaves us in the now and the no mind. And I quote, Space is the still, infinitely deep realm of the no mind. The inner equivalent of time is presence, awareness of the eternal now. End quote. Eternity is all time or endless time. Infinity is all space or endless space. We can access both infinity and eternity within ourselves by focusing on the no mind or the nothing. These will lead to an awareness of the infinity and eternity of our own being. Interesting, huh? On a slightly more macabre note, he also says that death is a similar portal. When we die, we access the no mind. But I think I'll stick with the meditation. So chew on that during your next long run, or maybe use it as an excuse for being a no mind at times. That's a good thing, right? You're accessing a portal that leads to eternity, infinity, and to your true being. And your running buddies are going to start hiding from you. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, you, you called ahead, made your plans, and safely ran across the nation in record time to the end of the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-408. And maybe it's time to retire, huh? Don't get caught in a funk now. <laughs> One thing I wanted to follow up on was, remember we talked with Enoch, the runner from Florida who was in the Olympic trials. Well, he ran Boston and he set a PR. He came in the top 25 at Boston. So he had a tremendous day. So you want to look that up and see his results. He had a great day. And we talked to him right before that. So it's all due to us, right? It's all that karma. So like I said, I'm in a short training cycle for the Vermont City Marathon. There's just no real way for me to walk away right now without my qualifying time this spring. I'm in too good a shape. And if you're going to be up there in Vermont, let me know. Maybe we'll say hi. I'm going to pitch a tent in the park there for a couple nights. 
I know, guy my age pitching a tent. It's something I learned from mountain bike racing. You just pitch a tent. You'll be fine. I got a new Garmin, a 235, and I'll give you a write-up on that at some point. I'm still figuring it out, but I, I like it so far. And I'll give you one quick story, uh, one quick iPhone tip to take you out. Currently, I have an iPhone 6S, and I like it. I listen to podcasts and music on it. And when I drive to work, I tend to listen to podcasts. Now, for some reason, when I plug this phone into the radio, and I also put this radio in my truck, it decides to start playing the first song alphabetically in the song list on my phone. That's the first thing it does. Now, the first song alphabetically in the song list on my phone was a really aggressive punk rock number called Already Dead by Rancid. So basically screaming and guitars, right? And the challenge I had was that some of the podcasters that I listen to, and I won't name any names, haven't figured out how to level their audio. So you have to turn them way up to hear them, right? And the result, as you may have guessed by now, was that I'd get blown out of my seat a couple times a week when I plugged my phone in for the ride to work and turned my truck on in the morning. It was like having an audio bomb go off in the truck. Eventually, I was moved to engineer a solution. So I downloaded a really mild five-minute morning meditation and I renamed the file to lowercase a a a a a a a a whatever the song name was. And so now I'm greeted by a lovely, low, and soothing voice encouraging me to embrace the day when I turn on my truck in the morning. And it's much better, much better way to start the commute. And if someone's in the car with me, I get to tell this story. As a corollary, I also changed my alarm on my iPhone to wake up in the morning to be a compilation of inspirational seize the day type speeches. So if you want me to walk you through how the how to's, how to do that, just shoot me a note and I will see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. Ricky, don't lose that number. It's the only one you need. And by using it, you'll feel better when you get home. So, uh, let's get this party started here. Ooh, that tea's pretty hot. I gotta let that cool down. That's, uh, Red Riobos, Robos tea from Africa. Very good, very good tea. 